0: What's up, Lions of Liberty fans? You can now support this show on Patreon and get exclusive access to bonus audio and video content, including Conspiracy Corner, Degenerate Gamblers, bonus segments with guests, and so much more. Head on over to patreon.com slash Liberty. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here's your host, your guide, Shining Beacon of Liberty, Mark Clare. Hello, hello, hello. Once again, my friends in Liberty, I am so pleased to welcome you to another edition of the original, the flagship Lions of Liberty podcast that has been going for nearly five years now. I'm going to have to come up with something special uh, for the five-year anniversary next month. I don't know what that's going to be yet. Um, but it'll be special. I'll tell you that. I will tell you that. So please stay tuned. Uh, stay tuned to this show every single Monday, but also the shows of my fellow Lions of Liberty, including Brian McWilliams, who smacks you upside the head every single Wednesday with his weekly shot of comedy, culture and liberty on Electric Liberty Land, while John Odie Odermat wraps things up every Friday with his weekly look at the broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday. And now, if you didn't have enough variety already in this, the only libertarian variety show out there, you now got another show at least through November or so because every Tuesday we've got a ad- new edition of of Candidates of Liberty, where we interview different libertarian candidates running for office around the nation. So check that out. We had a great interview debuting with Laura Ebke last week, and tomorrow you'll hear from John Odermatt as he interviews Roger Barris, a candidate from Congress out of Colorado. So that should be very, very interesting. Something else you should find very interesting, hopefully, will be today's interview. And before we get into that, I just want to remind you where you can find the show notes for today's show, because this is the and. 60 second edition of the flagship lions of liberty podcast hosted by yours truly that means you can find today's show notes which will include many links to things discussed in today's show over at lionsofliberty.com slash 362 without further ado Let's get into today's show. My guest today is the president and general counsel for the Fairness Center, and we'll discuss a little bit more about just what that is during the show. I'm very pleased to welcome Mr. David Osborne. David, before we get into this, there's a very pressing question that I have to know the answer to. Are you ready to roar? (laughs) I think so, Mark. (laughs) <laughs> All right, David. Well, before we get into exactly what the Fairness Center does, I want to learn a little bit more about yourself and, and kind of how you got to where you are today. So why don't you just start off telling us a bit about how you got interested in law, what motivated to get you into this field, and how did you find yourself at the Fairness Center?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, well, I'm an attorney, Mark, and I was building a law career down in Florida. I clerked for a, a Supreme Court justice for the state of Florida and then went into private practice doing healthcare related stuff and, and some regulatory and business law. I got a call about basically a market that I didn't know about up in Pennsylvania where I am now. You know, there are a lot of lawyers who help unions and a lot of lawyers who help employers including public employers like, you know, municipalities, school districts, states. But there aren't a lot of lawyers who can help sort of the regular public employee or other folks who've been hurt and sort of caught in the middle between these these big battles between public sector unions and between the government. And it happens all the time. There were some folks up here who were involved with another organization who witnessed it firsthand. There were a lot of, for instance, school teachers who tried to get out of their union and resign their membership. And when they did so, they would face retaliation by either, either their employer or by the union. And They were without legal representation. And and the real reason is it's a market failure. There's a lot of times the dispute is over a few hundred dollars. And if you go to a lawyer, you're going to burn through that within within the first couple hours. So the market that existed here that we thought we could fill was to provide excellent legal representation for folks who've been hurt by public sector unions and to do it in the form of a nonprofit. So the Fairness Center, which we ended up putting together, is a 501c3. It's a nonprofit. Called a legal service organization, and you know there are many of these around. The NAACP was one of the early public interest law firms. There are others that you, you'd hear about today. The NRA has its own. The ACLU is a sort of a giant public interest law firm. That's the model that we chose, and we chose that to solve the market to to reach the market we wanted to reach. Within the, our first few years of existence, we were already representing some of these folks, and we've been around now for four years. I really, really like my job. I feel like we're doing service for these folks that they couldn't get otherwise. And I guess we're here today to talk about some of those issues that have become national in scope.
0: All right, David. Well, well, that's good stuff. So it sounds like you're able to really find an an unserved niche in the legal field. I'm curious, kind of going into this this point, before you started the Fairness Center, did you sort of have any sort of ideological concepts about the relationship between public sector employees and unions? Or was this something you just kind of found the niche for and realized that there was a need out there for and realized that there were many people that were suffering and that were having difficulties, you know, sort of in in that employer union relationship?
1: Yeah, good question. I do have a passion for the Constitution. And like a lot of lawyers, what I wanted to do, the reason I went to law school was because the principles that are enshrined in the Constitution were so exciting to me. And it it takes lawyers who really believe in it to pursue, to honor it. When it comes to public sector unionism, you know, I I grew up in South Carolina and Florida, where I would not have observed a lot of the problems that we've seen up here in Pennsylvania in the Northeast. The unions that I was familiar with in Florida, the teachers union, for instance, they largely sort of stuck to their lane. They did what what you might normally see unions doing, bargaining over collective bargain agreements, processing grievances, stuff like that. What, what you didn't see them doing, what you see them doing in the Northeast in particular, is wielding political influence on issues that really don't even have to do with education. And it's really that political influence and the preservation of that political influence that made, that hurt so many people up here in Pennsylvania. You know, many of the legal issues could have gone away pretty quickly. As a lawyer, I would often represent businesses. And, you know, when issues come up, probably the best thing a lawyer can do is help a business make those issues go away by either reforming the practice or by making the person happy. What you didn't see the unions doing up here for my clients was helping them get where they want to go. Instead, it was all about power and influence.
0: What are some of the biggest misconceptions out there about public sector unions? You know, what would you say to people who say, you know, they are they are very necessary because we need some kind of way to collectively organize for public sector employees to protect them against abuses, you know maybe from the government itself?
1: Sure. The one of the big things is that there's a difference between private sector unionism and public sector unionism. As many scholars have pointed out, one of the things that happens with public sector unionism. And we've had cases that have really resulted from this dynamic is that the, the unions, because they can get involved politically, are in the business of getting people elected who end up sitting across from them at the bargaining table. That's a really unique situation. Doesn't happen in, in private sector businesses, because at the end of the day, the, the folks across, who are sitting across from the bargaining table are really on the same side. And they're against often the employees and sometimes the taxpayers who we've represented in some cases and will come up with agreements that, that hurt people. That kind of thing is not what collective bargaining was supposed to be about. And it's really it functions not to protect the employee, but often to hurt the employee if he's if he or she is dissenting from those two parties.
0: So I guess the main crux of the issues that you're encountering out there and that you're helping people with is that many public sector employees are forced to pay dues, union dues to the union. And then that union goes and uses those dues to basically, you know, try to elect certain politicians. And then at that point, those politicians are not even really necessarily working for those same workers who are forced to pay dues for them. They're working perhaps with the union leaders or what have you, which may not really or maybe for even certain unrelated political issues that don't necessarily help those those workers that are forced to pay those dues. Right, yeah, yeah. And often
1: it'll be, you know, I've talked to a lot of public sector employees over the years. You know, I'd say there's a, there's a pretty typical breakdown among those employees of, you know, 50% Republican, 50% Democrat, you know, it turns out that unions funnel most of that money to about 99% Democrat special interests. That's not a reflection of membership. And moreover, a lot of the folks who might vote the same way that union officials might vote, they still don't like the idea that their money is being taken and funneled to maybe a candidate to support a candidate in, in another area. You know, a lot of the funds from uh, Pennsylvania that were collected went to go pay for recall elections for Scott Walker in Wisconsin. And you know, it doesn't really matter where you fall in the political spectrum. I think it's objectionable to a lot of people that the union will use dues for these sorts of political purposes that really have nothing to do with them.
0: So what what is the solution? I guess that you guys push for? Are you trying to prevent the workers from having to pay those dues, or are you trying to change what is able to be done with those views on the on the other end, and what those you know what the politicians and what the public sector public union sort of bosses can do with those funds?
1: Well, we work for our clients, so they really drive the ship. But I'll say they, many of them would have given you a very different answer to that question mm-hmm. you know, a month ago than they would give today. And the reason for that is a very important U.S. Supreme Court decision that came down towards the end of June.
0: Yes, that's what I, I do want to get into the Janus case. So why don't we actually just discuss that answer in in the context of the real world, in the context of that Janus, I believe it's pronounced Janus, the Janus case that was just ruled on at the Supreme Court. Can you just give a little bit of background on that and then discuss the implications of that ruling?
1: Yeah, sure. So Mark Janus is a public employee. He's an employee of the Illinois Department of Health Care and Family Services. And he believed that the union that was representing him and his co-workers was profoundly wrong on many important political issues. So not just, you know, which candidate to support or whatever, but also on on political issues that come up at collective bargaining. Like should everybody get a pay raise and at what level and with what cost? So a pay raise for instance for public workers comes at the cost of maybe some social service for other people. You know, if you're if teachers are getting paid better at a school Kids may not get computers for the year they may not purchase a new curriculum in other words, you know it doesn 't matter where you fall on those issues; they are inherently political right because they're about trade offs and and so Mark disagreed with with the direction that his union was taking around that same that's he started feeling that way years and years ago Bruce Rauner, the the governor of Illinois, came into office and shortly afterward filed he issued an executive order to say that in his view, it violated the First Amendment to take money from people like Mark and to send it to unions because there was a First Amendment component to it. People should have the right not to associate with an organization that they don't want to associate with or fund the speech of that that association. At the same time that he issued this executive order saying that he didn't want to collect what are called fair share fees, he also filed a lawsuit to ensure that he got a ruling that said he was right about doing that. Mark Janis ended up with with a collection of other public employees intervening in that lawsuit. And then because Bruce Rauner is not a public employee, he does not pay fair share fees. The court ended up determining that he lacked standing to bring that argument. He was essentially trying to raise someone else's First Amendment rights. But Mark Janis, among others, was able to continue his lawsuit. So Mark Janis took up the reins and actually his co-plaintiffs actually dropped out for unrelated reasons. So eventually it was just him. He was raising a First Amendment argument, and he lost, at the at, as expected, at the district court level and then at the circuit court level because of a case that had been around since 1977. Back in 77, the U.S. Supreme Court decided a case, took years to get up, involving Detroit school teachers. Now, at that time, unions, there's no such thing as closed shop. Unions weren't permitted to make people join and be a union member in order to keep a public job. That was certainly a violation of their First Amendment rights, almost like requiring somebody to sign some sort of a loyalty oath. But what the unions were doing is saying, great, you don't have to be a member, but you do have to pay a fee turned into what we call fair share fees. You do have to pay a fee. And it turns out that fee was roughly equivalent to this, to dues.
0: Right. So they basically just tried to change the wording of what you're calling the dues.
1: <laughs> you got it. These Detroit school teachers brought this case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And they said, you know, this violates my First Amendment rights. I shouldn't have to fund a private organization as a function of holding a public office. And the U.S. Supreme Court agreed in a lot of ways. But they did what you know a lot of Supreme Courts have done with with sort of uh, difficult cases is to try to draw up a compromise they drew up a compromise that said public workers don't have to pay full dues amounts instead what they have to pay for is this stuff we call core politi- core uh, union activities like collective bargaining or grievance processing they do not have to pay for overtly political stuff like you know endorsing a candidate doing good out the vote campaigns and we're going to leave it to the union to draw up the distinction between those two things.
0: <laughs> I think that's where the problem lies. <laughs> They're deciding where, how we're going to segregate those funds and how we're going to define what's political and what's not. And I imagine that kind of resulted in basically the status quo remaining. Over, well,
1: over the years, it, it, it proved totally unworkable. You're right. And the, uh, that case is called a bood. Ah, uh, remained good law, but really had to be refined and refined and refined over and over again by the U.S. Supreme Court in order for it to be workable. So they, for instance, came out with a decision that said, "Well, it's not enough that just people get a bill that tells them how much to pay; they should also receive some sort of a notice and an independent auditor's report on where that money is going, so that they can assess whether or not it was spent on political or non-political issues." There were there was also a decision about you know where do you bring that type of a challenge and how do you do it who has to pay for it a lot of different decisions coming out about what's chargeable and what's non chargeable but of course the fundamental argument which was also before the case, the court in aboude is isn't it all really just political right Justice Alito started to pick up on that idea in court decision in a U.S. Supreme Court decision called Knox which was only a few years ago, and realized that it's not only do you have this argument about the First Amendment really covering all this stuff, but you also have some real practical problems like, you know, why should the union be drawing those lines? And does the auditor really do anything when he comes in and looks at this stuff? Well, with that all as background, when Mark came to the U.S. Supreme Court, he, he really brought a, a very live issue, and many people expected exactly what happened. Justice Alito wrote a majority opinion for a 5-4 court that struck down the concept of fair share fees as a constitutional practice. Instead, what this Supreme Court decision says is that it violates people's First Amendment rights to make them, as a condition of public employment, pay a private organization for inherently political work, particularly when they disagree with that political work. And I thought they, they – in writing for the majority, Justice Alito put out some, some really great points that will make a lot of sense to your argument, to, to your audience. So here's a, here's a neat quote from, from the opinion that takes it sort of all the way back to the founding. Justice Alito said the idea of public sector unionization and agency fees or fair share fees would astound those who framed and ratified the Bill of Rights skipping forward a little bit, prominent members of the founding generation condemned laws requiring public employees to affirm and support beliefs with which they disagreed. As noted, Jefferson denounced compelled support for such beliefs as, quote, sinful and tyrannical. And others expressed similar views. So what Justice Alito basically said was it's time to get back. Sort of let's unwind what we started back in 1977 with this Supreme Court case. And let's decide it the right way. This time Nobody should be forced as a condition of public employment to pay a private organization for its political views.
0: So they basically sort of went back in the way to that previous ruling and said this isn't really the proper precedent. This doesn't go far enough. It isn't clarified enough. And we're saying, you know, more clearly now, the court is saying you cannot be forced to pay these dues. Yeah, it can, we can't
1: continue to clarify this we can't continue to work with this precedent instead we're going to reverse it outright and go back to w- what it was before and he had a, a number of good reasons for doing that you know folks are concerned about stare decisis stare decisis is the doctrine that says the US Supreme Court or any other court should really honor its own decisions as they come out over time there are exceptions to that to that principle and those exceptions were all present in this case you know i mentioned whether this was workable in practice it wasn't. There are a number of other considerations, including, you know, have things changed since we issued that decision? And things have changed, you know, since 1970, when most, uh, most states started to legalize public sector bargaining. It's that new. The average spending uh, for, you know, m- municipality or state w- was relatively stable and since then really shot up because of that dynamic. That I mentioned, getting someone in, across the bargaining table from you who agrees with you, spending went up dramatically. Pensions went out of control, and Justice Alito didn't say it. we can all draw a straight line to public sector unionism, but he said times have changed, and there are all sorts of reasons why people shouldn't have to fund, you know, these very political conversations we all have to have about public spending.
0: So, what are some of the arguments? I guess maybe both legal and otherwise, both legal and moral, maybe that the other side has made in in this case, in this general concept that that workers should be forced to pay union dues to these organizations. The arguments
1: that were made back in 1977 were the arguments they were making just last month. There are two of them. One is that despite the First Amendment problems inherent in forcing someone to pay money to a private organization we need to be able to charge agency fees or fair share fees because one, it promotes labor peace. Okay. Interesting. (laughs) Labor peace, it was perhaps a legitimate issue in this country for a lot of reasons, maybe even at that time. Okay. When people are, are going on strike and they aren't going to work, we all want labor peace. You know, we all want people to go to work. The The way that they saw to achieve labor peace, though, was to make non-members pay for political activity that they didn't support, and that's that never seemed quite right. Justice Alito specifically looked at that and saw, you know, maybe there is a labor peace argument, but if even if there were, you could achieve labor peace by means far less restrictive of people's First Amendment rights than charging them money for services they don't want. The second argument was that they wanted to prevent free riders and you guys talk a lot about economics on this show Mm -hmm. free riders is free riding is a legitimate principle it you know it's a collective action problem in my church for instance if you pass the plate around unless there was some really compelling reason to give you you probably want to look at the person next to you and say i'd rather you pay to support this (laughs) stuff and i can (laughs) get it for free
0: (laughs) you got five bucks on you Could you toss that in there for us thanks (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a legitimate problem whenever you've got a big organization. But the free rider principle really only applies when there's a public good. You know. So a public good in economic theory is something like military support. We all get the, the benefits of military support, but we always want somebody else to pay for it. And even if we don't pay it, we'll still get it, right? In this context, however, getting union representation is not necessarily a public good. Instead, it's a private good from which you could be excluded. You know, you, you could you could leave if you don't want it. So the idea of free riding being a reason to override First Amendment rights, just it never made sense either. And aside from that, the unions seem to be okay with it in many other contexts. You know, there, there are a lot of right to work states where you can't force someone to, you, you couldn't force someone to pay fair share fees. And in those states, You know, unions still found it very lucrative to to be in business as a union. Same thing is true on the federal level. You don't have these fees in the federal level, but unions still want to get in and be the exclusive representative for a bunch of employees. They still make money. They still run their businesses, and they still, as best we can tell
0: Hey, Liberty Rockers, this is Johnny Rocket from the Johnny Rocket Launchpad. Each week, I strive to bring you the best guests and talk radio. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad delivers weekly interviews of noteworthy politicians, economists, and activists. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad is bringing the party to the Libertarian Party and launching ideas in your direction. Check it out at johnnyrocketlaunchpad.com or find us on iTunes. Each show is action-packed, explicit, and a lot of fun. So join me at JohnnyRocketLaunchpad.com every week for the newest episode. Keep liberty alive and rock and roll. So, what are the the legal implications for the the Janus ruling across the country? As you said, does this well does this make, basically make the entire country right to work? Essentially, uh, is is that basically you know the, the uh, sort of layman's way to put this?
1: That's one way to understand it right right to work for public sector workers only
0: right right right
1: so and and it's really as a function of their public employment that this this ended up you know being a first amendment case in the private sector. You just don't have that connection,
0: and the fact that uh, the fact that private or public sector unions are are still functioning just fine in a lot of these right to work states sort of does show. Like, look, now you can operate as as more of a legitimate business instead of forcing your customers to pay you money. You actually can just convince them that it's a good idea to join the union. It's not shutting down the unions whatsoever.
1: Right? No, no, And, and public and public sector workers and private sector workers should have the right to join a union if they want. Absolutely, they should have the right to be a member. That was not what this case was about either. It was really about the folks who didn't want to join it, and they were being coerced into funding an operation that they didn't want to fund. Most people agree that, you know, that'd be great if, if somebody doesn't want to be a part of the union, you know, let, let, them, let them do their own thing. They might even support a concept of allowing them to represent themselves at the bargaining table. But the fact is, unions have always loved that exclusive representation model, whether or not they're getting paid by non-members. Because then, what this Janus is still not about is about exclusive representation. They still represent them at the bargaining table, and that's the way that the unions want it. So, you asked about what how the, what, how this impacts the country. Right. It's it's really important to remember that the U. S. When the U.S. Supreme Court does something, you really have to you really have to figure out what exactly they're doing, technically speaking, in order to answer a question like that. So, what the U.S. Supreme Court did is address the practice of collecting these these fair share fees or these agency fees. They didn't take Illinois law, which was at issue in this case as well. Illinois law permitted unions to do this. They didn't take U- Illinois law and really look at it to see whether it complied with their ruling in this area. Instead, what they did is said, you know, here's our pronouncement these agency fees can't continue. And then they remanded it down to the Illinois district court, the federal district court in Illinois to do the dirty work of actually striking down the statute as unconstitutional. So that is to say the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in this area really didn't have any immediate impact unless people voluntarily complied with what they thought it said. And it was very clear. So what you actually saw was a lot of unions and public employers throughout the country voluntarily comply with what they said. So a lot of people, regardless of their political position, do the right thing. It stopped collecting these fees. If they accidentally collected them after the Janus decision, you saw a lot of these organizations trying to refund them to the employees. So I think a lot of people just simply agreed with what Alito, with the substance of the Supreme Court's decision, they may not agree with the reasoning, but they agreed with what it said and and decided to comply. But Mark, the, the reality is there's still a statute on the books in Illinois. So it goes back down to the district court. They'll wipe out the statute, presumably. But that, thing, that kind of thing still has to happen in every other non-right-to-work state in the country. So in Pennsylvania, where I sit now, or in Connecticut, where the Fairness Center also operates, there are statutes on the books that allow for the collection of fair share fees. We've got cases pending in Pennsylvania where public employees already wanted to do what, what Mark Janice ended up doing. They, they wanted to take on this issue, and they wanted to take down agency fees as unconstitutional. Now we've got to do the work. We've already alerted the court that we're going to move forward in their case of helping them to knock down the statute in Pennsylvania and ensure that it doesn't happen here in the future under some, you know, change in the law or change in perspective on the part of the unions. There's always a chance too. I mean, the US Supreme Court's decision was very broad and sweeping. I'm not sure that I can imagine how this would happen in this case. But in a lot of instances, when the after the U.S. Supreme Court says what it says, you actually have to figure out if what they say applies in your state under your particular law. Again, I don't see that happening in this case. It was so broad. But, but you may see different statutes pop up across the country to try to take a different direction on this that arguably may not – it may be an equal infringement of someone's First Amendment rights, but it arguably may not – contradict the decision in this case.
0: Let's uh, talk about just a couple of the cases that you guys at the Fairness Center are specifically working on in relation to this. I know you're working on a one uh, the Hartnett case representing four public school teachers. Do you want to talk about that a little bit and how this Janice ruling I'm sure will of course help your case?
1: Yeah, that's the that's the case I mentioned that was filed before Hartnett's or before Janice's case, right? Right. Mark Janus simply got his case accepted by the U.S. Supreme Court as this was going on. So we were in the middle of discovery on on the case and ended up getting the case stayed pending the outcome of Janice. That was a that, that development was was just fine and, and it worked out for our clients. The the Janice case, now there's sort of we have to breathe life back into it because it's the next step. It brings Janice to Pennsylvania. It's one way to understand it. Greg Hartnett is a, a teacher. We represent four teachers in that case who, like Mark Janice, always felt like he shouldn't have to support the union. He had some interesting reasons for doing so. He lives in an area of Pennsylvania that, like it's out in western Pennsylvania, and like many areas in, in Pennsylvania and perhaps the Rust Belt generally, the communities are sort of failing economically. And they're doing that in part because private businesses have moved out over the decades. And the, the cities and counties have taxed people have continued to sort of raise taxes as they've lost population, which only only drives
0: more people out. Of course. It's an but Endless cycle. It's happening out here in California quite a bit. It, well, yeah.
1: Yeah, boy. Greg Hartnett was in one of these communities. And when his union was pushing for higher wages, he said, no, wait a second. You know that we don't have the tax base to support this. In the meantime, I've got friends out there who are struggling in this community. How can I possibly push for higher wages in this environment? The long-term effect is going to be people are going to lose their jobs. It may not be me, but it's going to be somebody. Right. And he took the stance that the the pay raise was not a good idea, and he didn't support it. Now, this is something unions are known for doing. They, they push up the wages. It's, <laughs> it was generally accepted pre-Janus that that was not political.
0: It's not often you find someone uh, principled enough or, I guess, maybe logical enough to argue against their own pay raise. <laughs> That's there pretty are a lot impressive. More out
1: there, there are a lot more out there than you think. Another woman who's involved in that case, another plaintiff, her name is Bitsy. Bitsy, Bitsy was embarrassed that her union was pushing this really elaborate health care package that you know she knew that her community really shouldn't be paying for. And and definitely her friends were getting the same deal. A lot of teachers in Pennsylvania for instance, don't even pay anything towards their health care. Yeah, they, a lot of folks feel that way. And, and it underscores the, the idea that this is really a political enterprise particularly when there are so many employees being represented by public sector unions. So that case, you know, we expect that the, the court will follow Janus just as it's written, and we'll give our clients the, the relief that they've always sought.
0: That one should hopefully be a, be a slam dunk now for you guys. It should be. Right. Well, one more case I want to touch on here that I saw you guys are working on. It's the case of Miss Mary Trometer. and this is actually raises an imp- pretty interesting implication from Janice that begs the question, you know, what can you do with union dues now? So I believe she is challenging yeah. her local, her public uh, union, uh, her education union on the use of dues money to support a candidate for public office. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about the yeah. specifics of that her- case?
1: Mary Trometer is a an assistant professor at, at a school called the Pennsylvania College of Technology. It's sort of like a, a trade school. It's part of Penn State. She's a culinary instructor and also a chef. She was part of a teacher's union. Uh, the teacher's union represents the the professors in that school. And the teacher's union had long been very political. They had actually sent her mailers periodically that she just found really detestable one day she got a letter in the mail it was actually addressed to her husband and it was around the time of the 2014 ele- election that governor it was a big governor's race here in pennsylvania at that time and the letter described why the incumbent who was who happened to be a republican was so bad for educators and why the the democrat who was running against him would have been so good and it was i, I said addressed to her husband at the bottom of the letter it said please join mary That's her. In voting, huh. in voting for Tom Wolf on November
0: fourth. Wow! So that's specifically invoking her her name. <laughs> yeah, you got it without her wow. permission,
1: and she was incensed at that, and and I can imagine she, and tore the letter down the middle and, and threw it in the garbage can. She started to walk away from it, and she thought, you know, this time I'm going to do something about this. So she went back to the garbage can. Took that letter out and taped it together. It's, it ended up being the copy that we had to provide in, in, in the legal proceeding. So we've got a we posted on our website. Sort of a break. There's an obvious break in this page. Taped it together and got in touch with us.
0: I feel like it's better that way that you that you had to use the ripped up letter. It's like it's kind of symbolic. There's a law here in Pennsylvania
1: that prohibits the use of general a unions general treasury dollars. That includes dues to support. Directly or indirectly, candidates for political office. It also disallows them, again directly or indirectly, to send dues money to a political organization. Well, at the bottom of this letter, there was a disclaimer that said, "This piece is paid for by the NEA Advocacy Fund." The NEA Advocacy Fund is a is a super PAC that into which the NEA, the National Education Association, a big big teachers union, has long been putting. General Treasury dollars they take dues and they put it straight into the super PAC and they do issue advocacy and support candidates in an uncoordinated fashion so but this law exists in Pennsylvania, and for really good reason i I mentioned this sort of cycle where unions can often get people elected that agree with them and sit on the opposite side of the bargaining table. Why should the union dues? which ultimately are a piece of the the public fisc. why should the union dues go to elect these people? Instead, if unions want to be involved politically, they should have to set up a PAC and ask its members, which they're allowed to do, if they want to support these candidates by submitting to the PAC. Well, we made up a form and submitted it to the law enforcement group that's supposed to enforce this law here in Pennsylvania. We also told them we were we were making up a form. We said, "We you don't have a form for this, so we made one for you." And we we lodged a complaint of misuse of of dues money, and it took a very long time. They finally got to it and tried to shuttle it off to a, to the attorney general for enforcement. And you know, it was, the attorney general has all sorts of other priorities. Um, that was not an advantageous place. For our client, it was also contrary to the law. So we filed an appeal and ended up winning that appeal. the The appellate courts here said, "No, really, it was the Labor Relations Board. You've got to enforce this." So we went back down to the, the Labor Relations Board and had a first of its kind hearing. This law was passed back in 1970. They've never done anything like this. They've never really been asked to enforce the law. So we did a first of its kind hearing last year. Presented evidence of of this of these violations of of the law and we waited a ruling from the Labor Relations Board. Interestingly, along the way, the unions raised an argument on Citizens United. Now, they've been very public. That Citizens United, they think, is a distortion of democracy. You know, it, it allows corporations to wield inordinate power in elections. But here they are relying specifically on Citizens United as a basis for union political involvement.
0: The irony is not lost. No, no. Um, <laughs>
1: now here 's why Citizens United really has nothing to do with this. First of all, they are they got into the business of being, being public sector unions, and we condition in heavily regulated industries like unions we condition what they can do with, with their with their operations. We do it all the time for state contractors too it 's probably the closest analogy. A state contractor when they sign up to do to do business with the government, they waive all sorts of what you might consider constitutional rights. I used to work for some state contractors. They they don't get to say nasty things about this the you know the department that they're working with. Instead, they're there to do a job. Well, that's what unions were there to do. Another reason is that you know Citizens United uh, did address unions. It said that corporations and unions should be permitted to to engage in, in certain issue advocacy campaigns as long as it's uncoordinated with a candidate. But it didn't specifically address public sector unions. And the issue that I'm bringing up about about the unique problem of of public sector unions is in full swing here so i think that the state actually has a compelling interest in telling unions what it can do with the dues money that comes you know pretty much right out of its its own coffers the state does not want people to assume that what's going on in a collective bargaining agreement session is a closed door political event it shouldn't be that way but it turns into that when we allow people to see this sort of cycle of, of dues money going to support political candidates. Right. And whether it's directly or indirectly, that still survives. So, I mean, it happens to be direct in the sense that the union directly sends people's dues money to a political organization called the NEA Advocacy Fund. They shouldn't be allowed to do that.
0: Well, David, this is very uh, important work that you guys are doing out there. I know it's work that a lot of my audience uh, should be able to get on board with. So why don't we wrap up by just having you uh, let people know out there how they can find out more information about the Fairness Center, how they can uh, contribute if they like, and give us us the full roundup.
1: Sure. You can do all that stuff on our website. It's fairnesscenter.org. Fairnesscenter.org.
0: David Osborne of the Fairness Center, thank you so very much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Keep up the great work and keep on roaring. You too, Mark. Thanks so much. (laughs) All right, friends. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with David Osborne of the Fairness Center know that was a topic a lot of you had asked me to dive into and dive into it I did with an expert on the subject and want to thank my man Connor Dragotis of the Better Money Pack for setting up this interview so shout out to Connor and the Better Money Pack please check out bettermoneypack.com to learn more I'll also post my interview with Connor uh, in the show notes for today's show which again you can find at lionsofliberty.com/362 as you listen to this program I am traipsing around somewhere in the uh, western southwestern United States so Um, uh, I am busy at this moment getting ready for that trip and packing for that trip, so I'm going to keep this one brief. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the program, and I hope you will continue to enjoy all the fine work we do here at Lions of Liberty. Of course, this Wednesday, you've got Brian McWilliams doing his weekly shot of comedy culture and liberty on Electric Liberty Land, and John Odermatt wrapping things up with his hard-hitting look at the broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday – And a bonus show, we also now have the weekly Candidates of Liberty show featuring different libertarian candidates. That's why you've got to hit that subscribe button, whether you listen on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever it is. Some of you even listen on YouTube. Wherever you listen, hit the subscribe button, and then you get nice little notifications or automatic downloads, and you don't even need to think about it. You just get more liberty in your ears four days a week now. That's amazing. And if you appreciate the work we do, and want to perhaps contribute to it, help us expand the work that we're doing. You can check out our Patreon over at patreon.com slash lions of liberty. We have so much bonus content that comes your way regularly, including the Degenerate Gamblers podcast, which is basically a show somewhat about gambling, but mostly about old stories from our college days, uh, as well as the conspiracy corner podcast that i host which is pretty much like libertarians in living rooms drinking liquor only uh talking about conspiracy so we have a blast with that show and of course the always fun league of liberty podcast that i do with my friends uh roger paxton of the lava flow johnny adams of blast off and chris spangle of we are libertarians that's all i've got folks i'll talk to you next week and until then live long and live free